that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Thank you, Amanda, and uh, welcome on to the, the chapel team. We appreciate you leading us in prayer today and reading the scripture for us from the Gospel of Mark. I think I should make it clear that I didn't knowingly choose this date to speak at chapel. And nor did I knowingly pick this passage thinking about this date to speak at chapel. So whether that is considered something good or not, you will decide in a moment for yourselves, really. In the storms of life, we should put our trust in Jesus. I have little doubt that many a sermon on this passage has concluded with that sort of instruction, invocation, invitation, or at least implication. Maybe I'm just talking about my own sermons and saying that. In the storms of life, we should put our trust in Jesus. Indeed, that is good advice. But there are two difficulties about giving that advice on the basis of this particular passage. The first difficulty lies with the passage itself. And I think the second difficulty actually lies with us as listeners. In terms of the difficulty that we have with the passage, and encouraging people to, to put their faith in Jesus, the fact is that this passage never really lands on affirming the faith of the disciples. Let me illustrate, and I hope the folk from back in the UK will get this illustration. Back in the UK, we used to sing a children's uh, song based upon this passage. It was an action chorus, and it would go as follows with Christ in the vessel, you can smile at the storm, smile at the storm, smile at the storm. With Christ in the vessel, you can smile at the storm as we go sailing home. The difficulty is at the end of this event, no one is smiling. Neither Jesus nor the disciples. Rather, we have a somewhat awkward exchange which takes place between Jesus and the disciples. This awkward dialogue begins when the disciples rouse Jesus with the words, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And the dialogue kind of concludes when Jesus says to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? One Bible commentator puts it like this, just as they expressed their disappointment in Jesus during the storm, so Jesus now tells them in no uncertain terms that he is disappointed in them. As Mark tells it, this event is not so much a story about the presence of faith. 
It's more a story about the lack of faith. And then even although it kind of ends with the disciples, I don't know, are they terrified? Are they in awe? Are they wondering? Are they amazed? It really depends on what version of this passage you read and how you translate the words. But it doesn't ever really end by saying, didn't they have faith and we too should be like them? That's not really where Mark lands this story. So that's the problem with the passage. And then I think the problem or the second difficulty with giving the advice in the storms of life, we should put our trust in Jesus out of this passage is I don't think that our problem is knowing that that is something we're meant to do. I don't think that's a problem at all. I think we probably do know that is something we're meant to do. Rather, I think our problem is knowing how do we do this? How do we actually put faith in Jesus? Or to put it a little bit differently, I think our question is how can we develop the sort of follower faith that can provide us with comfort and strength when we face unwelcome and unexpected personal, physical, social, economic, and yes, indeed, political disruptions that threaten to overwhelm us and drag us somewhere down into the depths. Or as I think my colleague, Dr. McNally, might put it, and John can correct me later if I'm wrong. I think he would raise the question by saying, how do we build faithful resilience as followers of Jesus Christ that enable us to put our trust in him when things aren't working out? That I think is our problem, how? And actually to be told time and time again, we should, doesn't actually address the problem which we have. It just compounds it. Fortunately, I think at least, that this particular event can begin to help us understand the question, how do we do that? And I think we can learn from the passage how we do that if we're willing to explore why Jesus seems to have been disappointed with the disciples. What was it that made him expect that by now they would have more faith? Why is it that he said to them, and why still do you have no faith? So I, I think if we're willing to look at the passage in that way, we might be able to try and pick up what we can learn, not from their example, but rather learn from what perhaps they did wrong. So where do we go with this? Well, I want to offer these ideas about why I think just Jesus was disappointed in them. I think he was disappointed in them because of their experience of his prior teaching. In the storm, they call out teacher. That makes sense in Mark chapter four for them to say that. Mark chapter four is one of the two great teaching passages that we find in the gospel of Mark. When we look at Mark chapter four, it has been an intensive day of preaching. To be sure, this is not the first time that the disciples have been taught by Jesus, but it's kind of like they had signed up for an intensive course. Not only that, in this intensive course, they had front row seats and backstage passage. It passes because Jesus makes it, or Mark makes it pretty clear that although he taught, Jesus taught the crowd in parables, that he taught the disciples what the parables meant. 
I think in Mark chapter 4, we are probably only given a summary of the teaching that day, but yet Mark tells us the pattern. The pattern went like this. Jesus taught the crowd in parables, but he explained everything to his disciples in private. In Mark chapter 4, the disciples are given a priv privileged status. They are seen as been having given inside privileged understanding of what Jesus had been teaching. This kind of contrast between the disciples and the crowd is highlighted when we're told they went into the boat, do you notice, leaving the crowd behind them. And even although there are other boats with them, the passage then focuses in only in one boat. It's a boat in which we have the disciples who were given the privileged insight to his teaching. It is them who shout, teacher, and it is to them he says, do you still have no faith? I think Jesus is disappointed in them because of their prior experience of his teaching, but they don't seem to have been able to carry that forward into this new situation. However, I think it runs deeper. I think Jesus is disappointed in them because of their prior experience of his power and authority. In the Gospel of Mark, it's pretty difficult to separate the power and authority of Jesus from his teaching. Word and deed belong together. And just as these disciples had experienced his prior teaching, so they had indeed experienced his prior power. They'd experienced his power and authority in the synagogue when he healed a man with an unclean spirit, leaving all of the people saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. They had experienced his power and authority in Peter's mother-in-law's house. When Jesus raised her up from her sickness so she could begin to serve him, they had experienced his power and authority. When late into the night, he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. They had experienced his power and authority when he said, be clean, and a man with leprosy was healed. They had experienced his power and authority when he said to the paralytic man, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. They had experienced his power and authority when he said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand and his hand was restored. All of this before this event, by the way, we're still in the first four chapters of Mark's gospel. They had experienced his power and authority because whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, you are the son of God. Now, to be sure, in the boat, we're facing a new kind of situation. And there is undoubtedly a theological significance about Jesus calming the storm and the waves. But really, come on, it wasn't the first time they'd seen him act. They had been with him in many situations, different situations, and seen his power authority. But again, they don't seem to have been able to take this and to carry this somehow forward into a new situation to ask, what does that mean for us here? But actually, I think it runs deeper than that. I think Jesus may have been disappointed in them because 
of their prior experience of his teaching. I think he may have been disappointed in them because of their prior experience of his power, but I think he was particularly disappointed in them because of their prior experience of his character. The critique which the disciples make of Jesus in the storm is not, do you have power? The question is, do you actually care? This is a question of character. Their question isn't simply cutting, it's sticking in the knife and twisting it. It's a question of character. Do you care? Are you concerned? Teacher, do you not care if we drown? But again, as with his teaching, so with his power, they had experienced his character before. Whether in the synagogue, the house or street, every exercise of Jesus's power had been for the sake of liberating, hurting, ostracized, marginalized, demonized people from the power of suffering and death. The disciples were there when a man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said, moved with compassion. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Their question in the boat is still, do you care? Are you concerned? It seems to me that Jesus was disappointed in the lack of faith because despite their prior experience of his teaching, his power and his character, they do not seem to have built any resources that they were able to carry forward into a new situation. And so Jesus says to them, still, do you have no faith? It's only since I've come to live in Nova Scotia, see some of the things that happened in the kitchen in my own house, not from me, and know what is down in the basement of our house, thankfully not too much water, that I have come to fully appreciate this wonderful story by the master storyteller, the late Fred Craddock. He tells this story. He says, I went to see a lady in our church who was facing surgery. I went to see her in the hospital. She'd never been in hospital before and the surgery was major. I walked in there. She was a nervous wreck and she started crying. She wanted me to pray with her, which I did. By her bed, there was a stack of books and magazines, True Love, Mirror, Hollywood Today, stuff about a famous actress and folk like that. She just had a stack of them there and she was a wreck. It occurred to me, there is not a calorie and the whole stack of this stuff to help her through her experience. She has no place to dip down into, 
no reservoir that she can reach down into and come up with something, a word, a phrase, a thought, an idea, a memory, a person. She has nothing. Craddock continues, how marvellous is the life of the person who like the wise homemaker. When the berries and the fruits and the vegetables are ripe, puts them away in jars and cans in the cellar. Then when the ground is cold and it is icy and it's barren, they go down into that cellar and they come up and at their family's table, it's like May and June. How blessed is that person? I don't want to belittle their situation, but it seems to me that Jesus may be expected that after all the prior teaching, all the prior demonstrations of his power, all the prior experience of his character, he may be expected they had at very least some pickles in a jar. Something that they could reach down into, draw out and use in the new situation. What then does this mean for us? Because we haven't had these same experiences with Jesus. I'm going to offer one line of thought on that. When I first started attending church services as a young, as a young teenager, and I don't mean to be offensive here, but I was never taken by the church practice of rewarding kids with treats for standing up and reciting Bible verses they had memorized by rote. As an outsider, I have to confess, it looked a little bit smug. I have to tell you, I was also a little bit suspicious of adults in the church who, in order to get their own way, would string one Bible verse after another together in a kind of litany of Bible verses, as though that somehow demonstrated their authority. To paraphrase the great Canadian theologian, Shania Twain, it didn't impress me much. In fact, I'll go further than that. These practices, in fact, made me very negative about both the nature and the value of memorizing script, scripture at all. A recent book, however, has caused me to rethink all of this. It's a book by the missiologist Rob Frost, Graham Bell, should be Mike Frost, I think, Graham and Graham Hill called Hide This in Your Heart, Memorizing Scripture for Kingdom Impact. This has caused me to review my opinion. I, I, I'm not really taken with their method of memorization. It doesn't work for me, but I am taken with their arguments about their value. Now, I know I'm maybe coming late to the party on this, but I think that I'm increasingly learning that the memorization of Scripture is less about externally presenting information and is much more about internalizing the scripture for our own formation. It's about allowing the scripture not simply to lodge itself in our brain, but somehow to lodge itself in our body, in our bones and in our blood with the kind of memory that will rise up to engulf us, to capture us, renew us and inspire us. 
The memorization of scripture is about putting pickles in the jar. It's about building faith and resilience through absorbing and being absorbed by the experience of Jesus, his teaching, his power and his character. I'm teaching a course and preaching at the moment that may surprise you that I should be allowed to do such a thing. One of the things we talk about is what is the function of the service? What do we hope will happen through the sermon? And my hope for this sermon is quite simple. That one or two of you might memorize some bits from the Gospel of Mark. I don't mean a verse actually. I mean an event, a narrative, a story, an incident, something that touches your emotion and draws you into that experience and encounter with the person of Jesus and his teaching, in his authority and in his character to give us something to draw upon when we need it. Teacher, do you not care? The disciples asked in the middle of the storm, do you not care? Don't get me wrong, I think it's an understandable question. I think it's a fair question. I think it's a valid question. I think it's a lament question. Very similar to some of the language that's used in the Old Testament Psalms of lament. If you attended any of these chapel services, you know at ADC, we accept lament as a very valid expression of faith. We are allowed to ask the question, do you not care? Perhaps like me, you've asked this question recently or thought it. Maybe you've thought it out of your own experience and that of others as you've seen the impact of COVID-19. Jesus, don't you care? Perhaps you asked it this morning when you turned on the television. Perhaps you asked it in the face of the strength of support, if not the ultimate political victory, but perhaps you asked that question, do not care this morning, when you saw the amount of support for an ideology which at the very least gleefully delights in personifying itself in unempathetic machismal behavior. Perhaps you asked it the question this morning, do you not care? It's a question that comes out of our experience, but there are other experiences we can also now bring to the table. The experiences of that which we have learned and which we have been grasped by from the scriptures. And so this morning I asked myself, where in Mark chapters one to four do I want to land? Where can I find a place that brings comfort and strength? Where can I draw upon some resource? And I ended up here. I ended up with an image. It's the image that the carpenter's son turns to as he's increasingly criticized. Yes, it's that image. The image when Jesus indicates that he has come to bind the strong man. The image that he has come to bind up all of the diabolical powers of death, not so that he can run away and be free, but so that he can enter his house and plunder it for, up with, for bringing free all those who are captives to the power of sin and death 
and hell. Jesus says he's come to bind the strong man. This is what he says his kingdom is like. And this is what he asks his people to commit themselves to. What it means to turn to such scripture is that even as we ask, do you not care? Somewhere else, deep, deep within, we believe that he does. And that memory, that thought, that teaching, that experience draws out of us the strength and the courage to face the moment. And I hope in that kind of bringing the resources, resources to the table that Jesus isn't too disappointed in us as disciples because he does see that we do have some pickles in the jar. So I'm not concluding this sermon with a should. I'm not concluding it with the instruction, invocation, invitation or implication that we should have faith. Rather, I conclude it by saying through the many resources that are available, through the scriptures that we have, we can build that faith that enables us to face the storms of life and to trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen.